This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Steren, the host of the Truce Podcast. We all know summer is a busy time. It's also a busy time for me. As you know, I have a full-time job driving a school bus in order to pay for this show. So I decided to take a few weeks off to give myself a little sanity break. Rather than pause the feed, I decided to make a couple of mini-episodes, and this is one of them. God willing, I'll be back in two weeks with another full episode, but if you'd like to help me make the show a full-time job, which would mean more regular episodes, bigger and better stories, visit trucepodcast.com donate. Okay, here's the mini-story. Let's rewind a few episodes. Go back to a high note. It's 1896, and William Jennings Bryan, this former member of the U.S. House of Representatives, is in Chicago. He delivers a rousing speech before the convention where they will nominate the Democratic candidate for president of the United States. Here, I'm just going to quote a little bit of the speech. He says, will you come before us and tell us that we shall disturb your business interests, meaning if we get rid of the gold standard, that we shall disturb your business interests. We reply that you have disturbed our business interests. The man who is employed for wages is as much a businessman as his employer. The farmer who goes forth in the morning and toils all day, uh, dot, 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 is as much a businessman as the man who goes upon the board of trade and bets upon the price of grain. That's Jacob Goldstein, host of the What's Your Problem podcast and author of Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing, reading Brian's speech. It's a good speech. It's a really good speech. (laughs) And like... You know, of course, I, having written a book about money, I'm like super thrilled that the most famous, you know, presidential nominating convention speech ever is about monetary policy. Like, great. I cover this in detail in the episode titled The Gold Standard. Anyway, he finishes this barn burner, the most famous speech in convention history about monetary policy. And the room goes absolutely nuts. Multiple bands start playing. They're carrying him around on their shoulders. In the course of his underdog campaign for president of the United States against William McKinley, he manages to be the first candidate of a major political party to travel the country giving speeches. He convinces a third political party to nominate him, the populists. Letters pour into his campaign headquarters. Clubs gather in meeting halls, church basements, community centers, and they hang his picture next to that of Abraham Lincoln and refer to him like they would a prophet. And William Jennings Ryan, he loses. He does not become president. So what does he do then? He runs a second time. After the Spanish-American War, in which the U.S. took possession of the Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico, and, temporarily, Cuba, now he's campaigning against imperialism, against McKinley. McKinley was the guy whose administration scooped up all those places. Here is an actor reading an excerpt from one of Brian's speeches in 1900. If it is right, 
for the United States to hold the Philippine Islands permanently and imitate European empires in the government of colonies, the Republican Party ought to state its position and defend it, but it must expect the subject races to protest against such a policy and to resist to the extent of their ability. Again, Brian was a populist. He's looking out for the little people, right? Well, wait a second before you fall in love with him completely. While he's championing the cause of people in the territories, he's basically leading the party of Jim Crow in the United States. As one biographer put it, Brian's flag-waving social gospel was blind to the parallels between domestic racism in the international variety. Yeah, he wanted freedom for the people of the Philippines. But in the 1900 campaign, he was mostly silent about the racial injustices here in the States. No discussion of the era would be complete without addressing that. Yet Bryan was forward-thinking in a lot of other areas. Republicans, including McKinley, were slow to criticize trusts, those huge corporations scooping up each other and forming monopolies. Companies like Rockefeller's Standard Oil were kind of like the blob. They scooched along, eating everything in their path. Bryan addressed that in 1900 and made it a big part of his platform. And guess what? Bryan lost again. All of that was in review. Now, let's get to the new stuff. Bryan had a publicity machine on his side. He decided to run a third campaign in 1908, this time against William Howard Taft, former governor of the Philippines. Taft characterized Bryan as in favor of punishment of the rich, but opposed to strong government. In return, Bryan didn't have the nicest things to say about the Republicans in his nomination speech. The Republican Party is responsible for all the abuses which now exist in federal government, and that it is impotent to accomplish the reforms which are imperatively needed. He went on to say something that is kind of key here when we consider Brian's ties to the social gospel. Shall the people control their own government and use their government for the protection of their rights and for the promotion of their welfare? Or shall the representatives of predatory wealth prey upon a defenseless public? His nomination speech contains scripture that he used to rebuke the Republican Party for not doing enough to limit the influence of railroads or special interests. He said that to love thy neighbor as thyself could solve every problem economic, social, political, or religious. He makes this case that Americans should fight imperialism, demand that money get out of politics, let their voices be heard, and he loses a third time. For many people, that would have been the end of it. How many of us could lose an election three times and still remain a force in American politics? Not many. Yet, Bryan went on to set the agenda for his party for years to come. In fact, Woodrow Wilson, when he became president, realized the political goodwill he could get by tying himself to Bryan. So he made him Secretary of State. And this is where I think Brian really shines, as the head of U.S. diplomacy. 
Leading up to this moment, Brian went on a world tour from 1905 to 1906, meeting the King of England. Your Majesty. And the Emperor of Japan. Konbanwa. 18 nations in total, advocating for international peace treaties. Brian, a veteran himself, though he never saw combat, despised war. So he and his team came up with this plan. Establish a system of peace treaties that would lay out rules for how to deal with conflict so as to avoid war altogether. One main feature was the cooling-off period. So let's say that England and France decide to go to war, as they had throughout their history. They were always sniping at each other. According to Brian's plan, they would have to wait one whole year before they could fight, like separating two angry children to their own corners until they calmed down. These conciliation treaties turned out to be quite popular. The State Department, under Brian's guidance, managed to negotiate 30 such treaties. That's kind of amazing. To celebrate this landmark achievement, Brian had some old swords melted down and formed into paperweights. They kind of looked like farming plows, inscribed with a verse from the Bible. Isaiah 2.4, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. A classic call to peace. He then gave those paperweights to diplomats, the cabinet, and the president of the United States. In his official portrait as secretary of state, he had them paint one of those treaties into his hand. That's not all. Brian was also against the imperialism of the Spanish-American War that led to the U.S. claiming the Philippines. He was instrumental in persuading President Wilson to support the Jones Bill of 1916, which promised the Philippines freedom in its preamble. Though, yes, it didn't set a timeline or specifics about how you go about doing such a thing. Still, it was progress. We mostly remember Brian now as a populist, a three-time failed candidate, head of the party of Jim Crow, and prosecutor of the Scopes Monkey Trial. All of those are true, but I think it's worth noting his achievements. He set the platform of the Democratic Party for decades, encouraged peace, sought to restore the Philippines, and fought corruption. All of this he did out of a sense of Christian duty. We know now, of course, that there were holes in his peace plan. Of the major world powers who did not sign treaties, some are worth noting, like Germany and Austria-Hungary, two of our enemies in World War I. As good as the process was, it didn't stop the coming global crisis. But you have to hand it to him. His faith taught that the world could get better and better. Like in the book Looking Backward from the last mini-episode, he saw society as able to fix the ills of humanity. But unlike Looking Backward, Brian was not a socialist. Instead, he believed that the role of Christians was to use government to improve society. This period we're swimming in here just before World War I was a short-lived progressive moment in U.S. history, when women marched for suffrage, churches fought alcoholism, politicians championed public schools, the end of monopolies, a central bank, they urged deposit insurance, and so much more. 
it wouldn't last long. And Christians like William Jennings Bryan and his followers were on the forefront. But it soon got muddled. Voices championing the betterment of society were mixed with calls for socialism, communism, and liberal theology, all of which would push theologically and politically conservative Christians to overreact in the opposite direction. Not surprisingly, they didn't want to be associated with leftist ideas. So they changed their platform, willing to keep trying no matter the cost, no matter how many times they failed. And in an interesting twist of history, their unlikely spokesman was the decidedly progressive William Jennings Bryan. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe to the show so you get every new episode as it's released. And please tell your friends. Please rate and review the show in your podcasting app. It helps people find truce. If you found this episode interesting, donate a little bit to help support the show at trucepodcast.com slash donate. And if you do so on Patreon, you'll gain access to bonus materials not heard anywhere else. Special thanks to all the people who gave their voices for this episode, including my brother Nick Starin, my friend B.T. Stevenson, Chris Ridgway of the Device and Virtue podcast, and Erica Anderson of the Worth Your Time podcast. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.